Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yorika Talbo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling stuck, you've come to the right place. Every week, I sit down with a creative entrepreneur to discuss the who, what, and why of their journey. As always, if you like this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with Michael Clements. Chief Creative Enabler and Founder at Art Jams. Michael, hello. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Yuri. How are you doing? I'm doing well as well. It is. Uh, it snowed for the first time up in Boston, and so the, the cold winter is upon us, and it's real, real this time, which well, I'm not a fan I appreciate of. The, I appreciate <laughs> the space today. Thank you so much. And we had a couple snowflakes yesterday in DC. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. I know it eventually will get down there, but uh, I'm, I'm hopefully you can hold on to the a warmer fall for as long as you can. Although some people say there are a lot of snowflakes in D.C., but I think that's a that's a different thing that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all together. Right. I think so, too. Different category of all of that. Yeah. So for my listeners who are less familiar with your work, how do you describe yourself and what you do? I like to describe myself as an entrepreneur. Uh, is someone that is focused on creating businesses that um, are, are creative enterprises. So I do have two businesses. One is called Art Jams, and it is uh, we, our mission is to make the world a more creative place. And we do that two ways, by hiring artists to teach art classes and by just getting people engaged in painting. Uh, I've been doing Art Jams for 11 years now, which is amazing. I think that just an art business is, has been around for 11 years. My other company is called Genki Media, and I do that to incubate creative projects. Um, it was actually Art Jams was our first business that we incubated and um, do some uh, publishing, writing books and TV production and um, theater production, and basically just sort of like incubating creative enterprises. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um... So, and I guess I'm also an artist as well. So, you know, on the, <laughs> on the personal side, I try to get my own art out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. All right. So you're, you're okay. So you've got multi multifaceted in this side and I love that. Before we go into each of those categories, I'm, I, I want to take a step back and, and just ask about your background. What initially got you interested in the arts? Uh, you know, I think that if you're creative, it's inside of you. Um, and I think it's not necessarily something that maybe triggers that. It's just uh, the issue is letting it come out and discovering it and becoming okay with it. So for me, there wasn't an aha moment. It was more of uh, this was in me, you know. So I always say to people, the blessing and the curse of being creative is that you can do some, the blessing is you can do so many things. The curse is you can do so many things, right? So over the years, just innately within myself, I played music, I've been an actor, I've you know been writing and, and painting and drawing. So I think the challenge was understanding that that could actually become a career. 
And you know, I grew up in a place called Clearwater, Florida, um, and there just wasn't my no one in my family was creative or were was in the creative industry. Although I found that later, my mom was a poet, and didn't even know it. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, it just wasn't a construct that was presented to me growing mm-hmm. up. But it was always inside of me. So it really took a, a long time for me to to kind of come to peace with that and then also pursue that as a as a career. Yeah. So I'm so with that, I'm I'm curious on so in your and again, I stalk everyone's LinkedIn, but I know that you studied communications um, in undergrad and grad school. So how what was that journey like from your college days of communications? into the um into the let's say business world and how did your creativity discovery come along with you during that time yeah it's it, it's been a long journey um it's it's taken me a really long time to kind of figure out who i am and i i think that's because there weren't a lot of structures and people and influences around me that were creative i didn't even realize that it could be a a career, you know, mm-hmm. it was just something that was inside of me that I had. Uh, so that I think that's a really long answer. I like to use this metaphor. Um, you ever go into a sound studio and you see the the soundboard, and there's all these knobs and the the channels. It's like a like twenty rows or thirty rows right. of knobs, and they're always like pushing them up. So I would say my life is like one of these soundboards, and. Mm-hmm. Instead of choosing one of these knobs and just going from zero to 10, I've, it's taken a really long time to be like, okay, I'm going to move this one over here to one. And then, mm-hmm. oh, this one looks kind of interesting. I'm going to move this one to one. And then this one's a one. And then maybe, you know, like five years later, I go back to the other one as a one and push that one up to two. And eventually kind of where I am now, there's this full sound because I've spent many decades, you know, like noodling around and, and toying with things. Now, sometimes I wish that at the beginning, maybe I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I just pushed that one knob from zero to nine and I got there really fast, but mm-hmm. that isn't what happened. And, you know, maybe if I was wanted, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor or, and then that I just focus on that my whole life. Right. Then that would have been the case, but I didn't know who I was and um, it, it's taken a while. So college, you know, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to, to do in college. Um, and I chose communication. It seemed like the right thing. I think I wanted to be a pediatrician growing up my whole life, really. And I got to my freshman year in college and I took a science class and I did failed miserably. I actually dropped out after my first year and then came back. And I, I saw a class that was like a script writing. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I didn't know you could actually, I guess yeah, all this stuff I watch in TV, I guess someone writes it, I don't know, whatever. And but what was interesting is that I also minored in cultural anthropology. I was really fascinated with culture. Um, and I, I guess I was gravitated to communication because I'm sort of an empath. I know that now, I didn't know that then. And I figured, well, how can you communicate with someone if you don't know where they're coming from? And that's where the cultural anthropology came from, which really is study of, of cultures and people. And I figured, well, you, you gotta get to know where someone's coming from before you can communicate with them. And it just sort of, you know, grew that way. And the master's degree in international communication in DC, which I don't really use, uh, except for the fact that I love to travel. 
Um, but with my when I did my master's degree, I shot a film and I did my field research in Barbados, which I highly recommend doing field research in Barbados. And um, I studied the intersection of artistic expression and culture as viewed through Crop Over Festival in Barbados. And this film is actually in the Smithsonian Human Film Archives. Oh, wow. So in high school, I was I was acting and mm -hmm. I don't know, I think. So the big moment for me, Yuri, just to fast forward, was when I was 29 and I was, I'd spent a decade, I was frustrated, you know, I, I, I kind of, after graduate school, I, I lived in Japan for three and a half years. I was a consultant. I was sort of doing like business language training and, but I, I hadn't really ever worked in a creative industry yet throughout my entire life i've been writing and drawing and acting and writing poetry and doing photography and all of these things that were just inside of me innately and and i was frustrated i was not happy and at 29 before you know i was turning 30 i was like i drew a line in the sand and i said from this day forward i'm only going to do a job that is creative and whether it's being an actor, whether it's being a writer, whether it's being an artist, whatever it is, I can't do any other job because that's why I'm not happy, right? Because right. it's in me and it is ready. This creative baby is ready to come out. <laughs> so I actually, um, I took this teaching job in, in China, in, in Shanghai. It was like a summer, it's like a three month contract to like teach English in Shanghai. And I flew over to Shanghai and, you know, I didn't have a lot of money then. And I'd already been in Japan for three and a half years. So I was sort of familiar with, with you know, living overseas in, in Asia. And the, they included the, the plane ticket. So I was like, all right, great. You know, the plane tickets included. I'll just go and, and teach this English. And then I didn't get on my flight to come back. Hmm. And yeah, and I just stayed. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm going to make this happen. Um, and I wound up getting this interview for a job in Hong Kong. And it was like, it was a teaching job at, the, you know, at this point I would overstayed. I was staying at a, a university dorm. That's where the class was. And like all the other teachers had left and gone back. And I had somehow convinced like the lady that ran the dorm was like, just let me stay for like another week or something like that. And she's like, okay. And then I was out of course. And then I, I, I was out having fun too in Shanghai. So I was out at this party I haven't thought about this in a while. I was out at this party. This was like the day before I went to hop on this flight. I got a one-way flight to Hong Kong to do this interview. Mm -hmm. I was like a teaching job at a university or something. Something I didn't want to do, which is why I went to Asia. It was not to do this, but I'm like, I got to do something. And so I'm at this party and I see this guy. And I was, and I recognize him. I was like, Tim. And he was a, a friend of mine, a fraternity brother, actually from college. And I was like, Tim, what are you doing in Shanghai? And he said, oh, I'm working for this pharmaceutical company or something like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's great. Hey, can I um, like leave all my stuff at your apartment? Cause I'm leaving tomorrow and I actually have nowhere to put my stuff. I brought like my mountain bike over with me which I don't know why I did that. It was like in a huge box. So he was like, yeah, uh, yeah sure, I guess. So the day, the next day before I go out for my flight I actually hadn't had a plan for the stuff that I had in my dorm. I was gonna like bring all of it with me to Hong Kong, which is not really smart. So I like dropped the stuff off at this guy's house. Tim, I was like, all right, I'm gonna go do this interview. 
I should be back like in like a couple days or something like that. So I drop off and I, I get to Hong Kong. I do the interview and I'd never been to Hong Kong. Um, I didn't have a place to stay. I did no research. This is like before Google. So we're talking, this is like 2000, right? So I didn't have a smartphone or anything. And I didn't, I didn't even know. It was just like flying by the seat of my pants. So I land there. I get a taxi cab. I'm like, take me to the cheapest place where I can stay. So the taxi cab takes me to a youth hostel. It was like $7 a night, Chunking Mansion. Look it up. It's a crazy place to, to live. Um, pretty interesting place. So I wound up living there for three months out of the backpack that I had packed just for the weekend because I only had $30 in my pocket and I couldn't afford to fly back to Shanghai. And yeah, but I'm like, I, I'm, I'm going to make, I'm just going to do this. So I, what I did was I actually wrote a couple travel articles, um, like spec articles while I was in Shanghai. And I started like pitching those around to magazines um, in, in Hong Kong. And um, I, I sold one, I sold it to China Daily and um, a couple magazines. I sold like the same travel article to three different people, which is you're not really supposed to do, but I was hustling at that <laughs> living in the youth hostel, right? So one day there's this guy that comes in, Michael Lamb, and he's an agent, a TV agent. And he has these frosted sunglasses and he comes in to the youth hostel. And it's like me living, it's like 15 people living in the same room in the youth hostel. It's like $7 a night backpacker place, right? And he comes in and he's like, uh, you know, I'm looking for some some background artists to do some some TV things. You know, I need like foreigners. I'm like, okay, I, I, can, I can be foreigner. I'm foreigner. So he's like, okay. And he's like, show up tomorrow. So I go and I, and I, and I've done some acting. So you know, I'm like good on set. I know what I'm doing and I've done theater and some TV and things like that. So mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, he hands me with you know, like envelope of cash, $30. I'm like, dang, you know, this is, this is like three weeks worth of rent. So um, I start getting hooked up with more acting jobs. So at this point, I've also like overstayed my visa. So um, I'm there in like Hong Kong. I'm like, this is, I'm going to make this. So I'm starting. And then I realized there's like a free internet place at the convention center. So I start sending out resumes and stuff like that every, every morning. And I'm doing this acting work. I wound up getting a job as an editor uh, and I, they gave me a visa. So I wound up staying in Hong Kong for three and a half years. And I became a managing editor, helped build a publishing company out there. I had multiple art exhibitions. Um, I was in, television, film, commercial. So I really fulfilled the goal um, and learned how to become a creative person and how to make a career out of, out of, out of my art. But, you know, it took a massive leap of faith that I look back and I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? You know, like, that's totally crazy. But, you know, sometimes it's just like billiards. You got to hit the cue ball to create the momentum, you know, to, to kind of spray the balls on the, 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 the table to get things going. And that really was the momentum that really has led me to this creative journey that I've been on since then for the, the last 20 years. And how it kind of dovetails in a way into art jams mm -hmm. is while I was in Hong Kong, there was a lady who had an art gallery and above her art gallery, every now and then she would open it up and she would let people come in and paint and she'd have the supplies there and the canvas and there was wine and music and it was kind of on the DL and she called it art jamming. Oh. And um, I really enjoyed doing that. And after Hong Kong, I moved to LA. I worked 
tried to work as an actor in LA for two years and I wound up actually making a living off writing because I found out that being an actor in Hong Kong was a lot easier than being an actor in LA. <laughs> There's a lot more people that look like me in LA than in Hong Kong, you know, like in Hong Kong, it, you know, I'm Caucasian. So they're like, you know, we need a white guy. I'm like, I can do white guy. That's yeah. it. You know, it's like, <laughs> and I, I would always joke when I got to LA with, with my friends that were African-American or Asian. And I would always joke with them. I said, I was so, I was typecast, you know, in Hong Kong, I was always either, you know, the CIA agent or the, the lecherous, you know, foreign guy um, or the businessman, you know, it's like, I can't get any leading roles over there. And, and they would look at me and they'd be like, shut up, you know? And, but when I got to LA, you know, it was like 50,000 guys that looked like me, you know, casting for a beer commercial or something. And, hmm. um, I wound up making live, you know, making money writing, and I got this gig as a executive editor for a magazine in Washington called Washington Life Magazine, which was a society magazine, lifestyle. And I wouldn't have got that job if I wouldn't have got the managing editor experience and title in Hong Kong. Um, and plus, I went to grad school in D.C., so I got this job, and it was literally like three days later, I was in D.C running this lifestyle society magazine and crazy story. Another crazy story is my last gig in LA, I was working on the West wing and I was Alan Alda, who was a presidential candidate who was president then um, mm -hmm. as one of his staffers. It was a background role. It was a very good background role because I got to carry his briefcase, you know, and, <laughs> So it was, you know, all the background artists were very, very jealous. It's like, why does he get to carry the back? You know, I got to do it like three episodes, carry, you know, and you're on camera behind him, kind of like going over his shoulder and looking, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and while I was doing that work, there was an actor named Ron Silver, who's not, he's not alive anymore, but uh, he was in a couple of those episodes. This is the last season of West Wing. And because when you're on set, you're basically in the same place for like eight hours a day. And um, we, we kind of talked a little bit as much as like actors talk to background artists was not a lot, but anyway, I, that was like my last job was like on a Thursday or something for them. And then I like packed up and moved to DC. And on Sunday, it was the Kennedy center honors in DC and which is a, a big thing. It's like the Oscars, you know, in DC and this magazine, since the society magazine covers these things. And the, the publisher was like taking me around the Mandarin Oriental, which was where they had the, the brunch for all of the people that were the Kennedy Center honors, you know, honorees, you know, and Ron Silver was there, you know, because he's like a well-known actor and stuff. And he looks at me and I look at him and I was like, hey, Ron. And he's like, are you, you were the, the background dude that I just saw like three days ago on Western. I was like, yeah, this is like my new gig now. I'm the executive editor of this, this, this magazine, you know. And I had just gone from like this totally different world of LA, you know, trying to hustle as an actor all of a sudden into I'm wearing like a tuxedo, you know, hobnobbing with society. And I did that for like seven years in DC. And um, after a while, you know, interviewed so many interesting people and everything that I got really motivated to start my own business. And I'm like, it's time for me. It was kind of like, while as I like how I went to Hong Kong to be become an artist and, and live off my creativity, I felt like the next evolution for me was to be a, a business owner and an entrepreneur. And I've been working for other people and using my creativity for other people. 
now it's time like, hey, you know, like put up or shut up. You think you're so smart. Why don't you go build your own thing? And I started to go through my mental Rolodex of like business ideas and stuff. And I like audited a MBA class at American University where I got my master's because I could do it because I had my master's there, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd never taken a business class because I did communication. So I sort of audited this, this class to kind of figure out like, what's a, what's a business plan, you know? Um, what's a SWOT analysis? I thought SWOT was a TV show. But, and that, so I started to go through my ideas and I remembered the Hong Kong thing, which was the painting and the drinking, right? Like, hey, and you know, at this point, the 10 years had passed um, and nothing was like that. This was 2010, mm-hmm. nothing was like that in Hong Kong. There wasn't paint and sip, there wasn't paint and sip industry. And I was like, that would actually be pretty cool to do in DC. So I started to do these. I got, I got, you know, $500 and set up one weekend of these pop-up paint parties. You know, I bought some canvas and I got like an alcohol sponsor and I booked a space and it sold out. I was like, wow. And people like, this is really fun. And since I'd been in media for six or seven years, I'd like hit up all of the publicists and all of my other, all the other writers and editors. And it was just like everywhere. It was on the Washington Post. It was in Washingtonian. I mean, if there was a magazine or a newspaper, I knew every single writer and editor in DC. Mm-hmm. And I leveraged the shit out of that in order to get art jams, like the new thing, like crazy new thing. And I think that, and anyway, and then, you know, I quit my full-time job and um, been doing art jams for, you know, like 10, 11 years. Although over the past couple of years, I want to, I actually got a job as editor in chief of another magazine, <laughs> Capital File Magazine, which I did for two years um, as well while I did Art Jams, it was a little busy. But anyway, that's a very mm-hmm. long kind of story. It's hard to explain it, but you can see sort of how it all, it's all attached. But I really go mm-hmm. back to that, that decision to just kind of do the one-way ticket to Hong Kong and, and to just make it happen. And it doesn't have to be a one-way ticket somewhere. It just needs to be a decision, a line in the sand and a leap of faith that you need to take. And I think that the big lesson in it was the thing that actually came out of it was art jams. But that's not why I went to Hong Kong. I didn't go to Hong Kong to like discover a business idea that I might have 15 years later, right? And that's kind of what I tell people is the thing that have you don't know the thing that's going to be the thing right now right it's going to be a couple stages it's going to be a couple steps and a lot of times people are looking for that thing right now they think that that this decision is the decision that needs to be the thing and sometimes it's not it's going to take a couple iterations it's going to take some weaving paths and some some dead ends and some cul-de-sacs you know um to kind of get to the place that you want to get to Mm -hmm. yeah so there's a lot to unpack in that. And thank you for giving me those details. Yeah. <laughs> what? No, no, it's okay. What I what I want to go back to is, so, and you just brought it up, that moment where you bought a one-way ticket. So in, in many people are, say, terrified of taking, let's say, a leap of faith in that sense. And it looked like you did like a huge leap of faith. Um, and maybe that was, um, youth had something to do with it. But either way, though, you acted in a way that was contrary to, let's say, fear. So I'm curious, 
throughout your journey of traveling from China to Hong Kong to LA and then to DC, how do you, how does fear show up in your life? And how do you navigate that, like the idea of fear and clearly move past it to try these new opportunities that keep on popping up because of, of what you've been able to um, uh, experience so far? Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about fear. It's almost like every entrepreneur article or book is like, conquer your fear. And yeah, and you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to take leaps of faith, but they also need to be calculated, right? It's, this isn't, it was a, it was a crazy move, but I'd mm -hmm. also, I knew I had a master's degree. I had confidence in myself. Um, I'd already lived in Japan for three and a half years. So I was familiar with living overseas. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really, it was a leap of faith, but it was also a calculated risk. Hong Kong is a big city. I knew that they had an established media establishment there, right? Uh, and that I was choosing a place that had an ecosystem within the environment that I know that I wanted to, to find a career. I didn't know how I was going to get it or how it would happen, but I was putting myself in position into a place that would enable me to succeed. How that success would happen, I didn't know. And I think that that's an important caveat to talk about is there's risk and you have to take leaps of faith, but you need to choose where you're leaping. And that decision to choose where you're leaping is, is important. The leap itself actually is the easy part, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I think the deciding when you're gonna leap, where you're gonna leap to is, is the hard part. And I think the biggest challenge is understanding there's never gonna be a perfect time. There's never a perfect window. There's always going to be a loose end. There's always going to be something that is a reason to not take the leap. So you need to understand that there's never a perfect time to take a leap or to, to take a risk. Um, when I went to Japan, uh, there, there's just a lot of, I mean, even the story about me finding my friend, this, this guy, you know, the night before I left, like I didn't really know what I was going to do with my stuff. I didn't have a, a place to stay when, before I left to go to Japan, I was, it was like two or three days before I left. I still had my car. I hadn't sold my car. I didn't know what I was going to do with my car. Um, and it was two days before I left guy showed up. Noah, I still remember his name. And cash in hand, ready to buy the, you know, ready to buy the car. And the cash that I, I had actually enabled me to kind of pay for the ticket that I had bought because I hadn't actually figured out how to, you know, pay for the, the plane ticket yet, you know. And it's like those things like, some, you know, serendipity is a powerful force. That's a whole other conversation. But right. I don't think serendipity happens if you're just sitting on your sofa. You know, you really have to kind of mix up the universe. Mm -hmm. So, so that's a very interesting comment on that. That you you have you can't sit on your sofa. Is that so? In these different types, in, the, in your journey, how have you, let's say, helped out serendipity in that way? Is it something inherent inside of you where you just kind of go and feel open to new experiences? Is it something you have to force yourself to do? Um, and get out into the community and, and, you know, mix it up 
in a way, or, or how does that process work in your mind? I think it works in my soul and my gut. Mm-hmm. I, I think the feeling of needing to do it ultimately becomes the, the driving force because if I don't, then I'll just be frustrated. Um, and I, I think that it's the overwhelming need to remove the what if. This overwhelming, maybe it is a fear that you're later in life and you say, I wish I would have, you know, what if, and it's that drive Mm -hmm. to get rid of the what if, and also to know that you're going to fail and that failure is not necessarily failure. Failure is, I don't know, pra- people you know, practice for success or whatever, but they, it, will, it will lead you somewhere. Like I consider my time in LA as an actor. I mean, you could look at it and be like, yeah, I failed, I guess. I mean, I didn't become an actor, you know, but I acted a lot and I mm-hmm. learned a lot. I actually learned that I didn't like acting hmm. in LA. I didn't like being on set for eight, nine hours. I. I, I'm mildly dyslexic, or like I, I, I like to say, dialy mislexic, and it's really hard to crunch a lot of text, you know. Like, and I, I love, I learned that I love theater and I love improvisation, and that that's just not what you do in in television theater. So I had to go there to realize, well, actually, this isn't all what it's made out to be. This isn't really aligned with with who I am, and you know. And I removed the what if, but in that sense, I succeeded. Yeah, I didn't make a career out of acting. So in that sense, I didn't. But, you know, now with Ginky Media, I'm involved as an associate producer in a, in a, in a television production. Um, and I understand the process. I know what it's like to put a, a television production together. I know what it's like to be an actor on set. And I know what all the different moving parts are. So I take with me learnings from that experience. Like you just take pieces of everything that you do with you. And it's really up to you to leverage those experiences you can consider them failure and put them on the shelf and never think about them again or you can leverage them into you know um knowledge for your next step and Mm -hmm. if it's knowledge that hey this is something i don't want to do then that's an important learning Mm -hmm. another interesting and i guess important part of your journey is your ability to balance multiple projects simultaneously and you've mentioned it a couple of times where um, you've been doing multiple things, and even even now, you're you're balancing multiple things. His, how do you approach the projects, particularly now in your career, the pro, the projects that you take on, knowing that you already have some commitments to projects, and and how do you balance everything, or do you balance everything? Yeah, I, I mean, you have to have a process, and I. I try to do, not try, I do four things a day. I look at four real main projects and it just sort of works out where it's like the most important things are those four things. And, you know, there's short term and there's long term. Um, you know, this expression, jack of all trades, master of nothing. It just mm-hmm. pisses me off. And it's always been something that people have said as, as a negative. Mm-hmm. I feel like now, 
you have to be a jack of all trades. Things are moving so quickly, technology and just how we, even as an artist, as a, as a creative, the tools at your disposal are coming so fast that you have to be able to adapt. So, but I, I do think that if you focus and you decide, you know, these are the things that need to get done. I really believe in the 80, 20 principles while leaving yourself some time to play mm-hmm. and just also letting, giving yourself space. Um, I'm a dad and you know, that's important. I think having like drawing lines as well, being like, you know, I'm not working on this right now. I'm, I'm going to be a dad or I'm going to travel or I'm going to sit down and write poetry or I'm going to meditate. And I don't know. I think you just figure it out really. I think it's, you know what, you need to learn how to say no. <laughs> I say no to a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. What, so what things do you say no to? Is there, do you have a guiding principle of this is, this is what I want to do. So it's either like a hell yes or, or a fuck no, or what's, what's yeah, that process? Essentialism. So in, yeah. in business, it's what's the thing that aligns with our mission and is going to, you know, drive revenue. And I really think over the pandemic, it, it, it helped to focus on understanding what's essential because the amount of time that I had mm-hmm. to do business was so condensed because we were, you know, our son was, at, was, was here at, at home. And it was like, I had two or three hours a day of like productivity. So it was just, these are the things at the top of the list that need to get done, but what's the thing that is going to drive in revenue and Mm -hmm. stay to our mission. Right. And you just start making decisions. What's essential. You know, what is essential? I don't know. You know, I know every, on every month on on the 20th, I have to file my, you know, my sales and use tax. So, you know, on the 19th, that becomes essential or, you know, I run payroll every two weeks for my team. You know, I know that that's essential for that that particular day. So these things kind of work themselves out as well. Um, I'll give you a really specific example. We were doing a lot of kids' parties when we had a physical re- – so we closed a physical retail space um, over COVID, and we pivoted yeah. like overnight to virtual art classes, and I invented an art box that we were shipping. We were doing a lot of kids' parties, right? Mm-hmm. So we still get a lot of these requests, and – and right now I just, we're not doing them because it takes a lot of time to kind of, we have a mobile van to kind of go out and find a space and the, the margins aren't great because, you know, parents don't want to spend a lot of money. So I just I mean, we're just going to focus on our corporate team building business mm-hmm. because we're getting larger groups. Um, the, the per person, you know, they, they pay more, you know, basically it's easier. There's less planning and right. I'd rather have, you know, a group of, you know, 200 and corporate employees spread out across the U.S. Um, than like an eight-person kids party, right? So we just had to make that decision. We're gonna focus on this type of business and not this type of business. Yeah. With that, and I'm curious how your your company has. Well, you mentioned a little bit of what you had to do during COVID, but what learning are you picking up from the the time during COVID, and and how you're evolving further with, with your business. So I know when you first mentioned what you started doing in 2010 was the painting and wine, which 
very social, very, a lot of people in the same room together, drinking, talking. And that has been a, you know, a phenomenon across the, the US. And I feel like there's every small town has a version of what you created. So how have you now, let's say, when I pivoted in a time yeah. post, like nowadays where we can kind of be in a room together, but not really. And, and how are you thinking about the future of, of your business? Yeah, COVID changed everything. Not just for me, but for so many entrepreneurs and especially brick and mortar yeah. uh, businesses. And we discovered a better business model. And again, I think part of the learning that I took from the crazy leap of faith to Hong Kong and even the crazy leap of faith of going from Hong Kong to LA to be an actor without knowing anything about LA or anyone or anything like that prepared me, you know, for the, for the, the decisions of being able to just change overnight in the mm -hmm. pandemic. And, you know, we're not going back to brick and mortar. Mm -hmm. And I realized that now, first of all, when you have a brick and mortar local you know, local place, your, your audience is in the area, right? And, you know, like I said, our mission is to make the world a more creative place and make the world a more creative place, not to make DC a more creative place to make the world a more creative place. So all of a sudden I realized that by drop shipping mm -hmm. and by doing virtual classes, we were actually getting closer to our mission to make a world a more creative place. And, you know, we've had customers that after this podcast, I'm going to drop eight boxes in the mail that are going to uh, Ireland because cool. we have a, a group next week of 50. And, you know, this company has 50 people and eight of them are in Ireland mm. and they're in California, New York. So, yeah, we, we learned an entire new business. We never did drop shipping. We never did e-commerce. We never did virtual. But, you know, that's what we that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And. Um, I think that the learning is that you can change and you can evolve and you can pivot. And sometimes you have to stop to see the, the you know, to see the, the forest through the trees. It took a pandemic in this case to do that. But what is the thing, you know, I don't want another pandemic to make me be able to think like that. Right. And so that's sort of the, the, the learning is, is that, our business model can evolve mm -hmm. and it, it will. And as long as we stay true to our mission and we're following our mission, how we deliver that, it doesn't matter. It could be mobile pop-up party. It could be in a retail location. It can be virtual, right? I think for us, really, the, the future is continuing to, to do virtual, but then also moving into the metaverse. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that uh, online learning and taking, I mean, the, my vision really is being able, you know, it's like you're taking a class with an avatar of Picasso mm -hmm. in his studio, um, you know, in Italy. And at the end, you, you know, create an NFT out of, out of your artwork, right? right? That's really the vision that I, that I have for Art Jams as we move forward because the tools are changing. And, but we still stay true to our mission. So we're mission driven and how it's delivered it will change depending mm -hmm. on the, you know, what's happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I, so I was going to ask you, so because you brought up metaverse and NFTs, how, how do you look at that space right now, knowing that it's, uh, so it's, 
you know, a, a fledgling market right now. There's a lot of, especially in the art NFT space, it's a boom, boom time right now where anybody, if you create an NFT and like Michael Cohen has created his own NFT and things are all like spiking. As a creator and artist, how do you look at the space and how do you think about it knowing that there are going to be booms and busts in, in everything that, that comes out in new technologies? Yeah, I think it, there's a lot of promise for, for artists and creatives and that the, the industry, of course, is still really, people are trying to figure out the applications. Um, I think blockchain will yeah everything will kind of be on the backbone of a blockchain but what i like about the promise of nfts mm -hmm. is the passive incremental revenue that artists can get through the smart contracts that are within the nfts so one of the issues that have always we've always had as artists um well especially visual artists because musicians will get royalties theoretically off their music right so right. they you know they wrote a song whenever and it's playing on the radio and they're getting some passive incremental revenue. Artists, visual artists don't have that. You sell, you sell your piece once, you don't get a cut of that as it continues to get sold or resold. So that right there is just a game changer for visual artists where a piece that they create, they will continue to be able to get you know passive incremental revenue depending on the percentage that they put in the, the smart contract within that NFT. And I think that's a game changer. And I think it, it's a long time you know, that visual artists have that opportunity to stay connected and generate revenue from, from their work as others profit off of their work, they should as well. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. With, with everything that you have experienced so far, what would you say has been the best advice that you ever received? So my mom had this expression and she said, celebrate life. And that is a mantra, I guess, more than anything that every day I, I want to celebrate life. And uh, I, you, unfortunately, over the, the past couple, you know, four or five years ago, I, I lost my mom and my dad. Um, and rather quickly, right after, you know, I got married, I had a, a kid and um, I started my business. And then I lost my father and my mom and my, my stepdad. And, it, you know, that's why it kind of also when the pandemic came along, I was like, I got this. I've been through a lot, you know, like you learn to to pull up the bootstraps and just to keep going. Right. Right. And she had this expression, celebrate life. Mm -hmm. And I just think about that every every single day. Life is precious and there's not a lot of time. And we have to make these decisions. And. Being an entrepreneur is really being a decision maker. Mm -hmm. People don't make, they're afraid to make the decision. Just make decisions. Things will happen. Things will shake out. And while you're doing that, celebrate life. Don't forget to celebrate life. So that's the best advice I ever had. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. Um, so this has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. If the listeners would like to follow your work, um, you know, or get involved in art jams or other projects that you're working on, where is the best place they can go to find all of those links? Well, art jams is A-R-T-J-A-M-Z, as in J. And 
Um, you can follow us there. I am at Mike Genki three, which is Japanese for Mr. Happy Michael, Mike Genki three. And you can check out my book, which is coming out. It's called Gen Exiled. So that's at Gen Exiled. And it's an, uh, dispatches from an analog age. So it's all the poetry and all the drawings and sketches and stuff that I did in uh, notebooks and, and things like that. Um, that'll be out in early 2022. Mm-hmm. You can follow me there. And then you can see my secret creator. My artist self is not for profit. That's K-N-O-T, the number four, and profit as in prophecy. So not for profit. And it's art that predicts the future. Wonderful. I uh, I will put the links in the show notes to all of those uh, so that the listeners can click right through. Uh, But again, thank you so much for your time today, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Yuri. I really appreciate the space. And to everyone out there that's in following a a creative path, just keep doing it. The world needs more art and the path will be kind of windy um, and stick with it. And just remember that soundboard, if you want a full melodic life, sometimes you can't just use one knob. You got to like push up a bunch of them and it takes a long time. So just stick with it and be patient, but just keep moving forward and keep creating. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Blackbones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yuricataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.